0: hi there ladies and gents it's uh dan from adventure more uk welcome to another episode of my podcast catch on the flip side today's special guest is two times britain's strongest disabled man he's a professional amputee footballer and he's also a british army veteran man is mr mark smith how are you my friend
1: how are you mate you all right
0: yeah yeah i'm good thanks i'm good um like i said it's um it's good I, I, as we mentioned beforehand i've been following your journey for quite a number of years and obviously you've gone through quite a lot of different sort of stages from obviously from when you had your accident all the way up until the present day um but what i want to talk about first of all is before the military because as i as i mentioned you've been in the military in the british army what what did you do before then like like from like a young age up until when you joined uh
1: to be honest sort of most of my growing up was taken up with football um i played from sort of seven years old right up until i joined the military uh that was that was sort of all all that sort of really mattered to me um and then obviously you get to 13 14 you realize you're not you're not going to quite make it as a professional footballer and you start looking at more realistic alternatives um and yeah for me i i didn't particularly sort of like the whole sort of sitting at a desk at school for hours on end and i liked sort of being up and about and active um i was a bit of a fidget i suppose and um i suppose that's where the the military suited me it, it was something that started to appeal to me more the older i got towards the end of school because it it was going to be sort of physical sort of active still i was going to get to travel the world which i would wanted to do it was going to get me away from home which i really wanted to do <laughs> um yeah and yeah, start with a clean slate, you know, go somewhere where, you know, the people from school and stuff don't know you, and um, yeah, the army was just a, a fresh start, you're almost sort of, uh, you know, buying into a family, um, mm. and I liked that, I liked the thought of there would be a roof over my, over my head, food, money, um, so all all of the things that they gave me that uh freedom to to leave home um yeah yeah So I from about sort of 13 14 i knew i wanted to i wanted to join
0: yeah that's it's like i said i know a lot of people like that i know there's a lot of people who go from you know like they've had problems in the past and obviously they just want to get away from their issues at home or issues in the local area and just want to join i'm probably similar to you like i played sport all the way through school uh and ever since I started pretty much in high school, since I started actually doing like, you know, my high school work and looking at what I wanted to do in life. I, I always wanted to join the army. So I, I joined at sixteen. Um and you know, I joined up, I went to Harrogate and stuff like that. Um uh, did, did, yeah. did you join at sixteen or was it eighteen you joined up?
1: No, eighteen because um my my parents weren't so keen on me joining. Uh, and obviously, you need yeah. you need your consent, don't you, under 18? Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, obviously, once I turned 18, I joined anyway.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, in, yeah. In my yeah. eyes, it was in the inevitable. So, uh. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I can I can agree. I know my, my parents weren't too, sort of, keen. Cause obviously, you would have joined up at a similar time to me then, where, you know, with the heat of, like, or well, the peak of, kind of, Afghan, Iraq and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And, obviously, at that time, my parents didn't want to send me to join the army and eventually you know inevitably i would have gone to these places which i did um but you did you join was it did you join the grenadier guards was that my right saying yeah 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 so was that something you you wanted to do or did you not really know what sort of regiment or battalion or you know trade you wanted to do
1: uh to be fair um the recruiting sergeant on the desk in milton Keynes careers office was a grenadier guard um right <laughs> all of my, all of my previous sort of times i'd gone in it was a royal green jacket um yep. and then the day that it came to actually filling out my choices before i went on selection uh the green jacket wasn't there and the grenadier was um so he scribbled out royal green jackets and replaced it with grenadier guards <laughs> um so yeah. yeah that's that's how the grenadiers come about but i I went in with an open mind. I just said, you know, I, I want to. I don't come from sort of a military background or anything, and but I want to be an infantry soldier. Um, mm-hmm. So I didn't really have any preference in terms of regiments. So I was more going off of them. So yeah, the day that it was a grenadier in the office, it was always going to be grenadiers. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite a common sort of theme, like especially for people who joined probably from our time and sort of earlier nowadays it's a lot more structured but um yeah in my situation it wasn't you know don't get me wrong mine mine wasn't that kind of situation um my my free choices when i joined up with the paris because i thought you know you watch all these programs and films you just want to jump out of planes and i was 16 15 15 when i started looking at joining so i was like i want to jump out of planes then they were like no you're not you're not big enough or strong enough whatever so I, i tried joining the qlr Queen's Lanks, which is what it was then because uh, that's where yeah. I'm from and then uh, Duke of Lang- uh, Duke of Wellington's which is another game what it used to be called but the when they, you do your barb test where you do you know you do all your tests and stuff like that they basically said look you know I, don't get me wrong I wasn't Albert Einstein I wasn't I, di- I wasn't an A star student but they were like look you've got you know some qualifications you did pretty well in your GCSEs is there like something you're interested in i was like well i kind of like doing you know working with computers and stuff like that they're like well why don't you join the signals um and i was like right okay that sounds good to me you get to play with computers all day obviously it's not like that but that that's kind of how i went i i went down the route so yeah i could i could have you know i joined the military sorry joined the the infantry uh you know uh but You know i went and did a trade um, and some people are different like you say i've known a lot of people to sort of be in the same situation as yourself where you know you go to the recruiting office and whoever's you know whatever corporals there sergeant whatever you generally if you don't know what you're doing or don't know what you want to join you tend to join that person's regiment battalion whatever Um, it's quite a common thing i don't know if you if you've met quite a few other people in the same situation
1: yeah most lads in the grenadiers because <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, yeah. the um you got you got given a load of vhs's to go and sit in the office and watch the recruiting right. videos um and when i'd said oh you know have you got one on the grenadiers uh, oh no we haven't got that one in at the minute so right. um yeah i <laughs> i there was no alarm bells but i I did watch one on the signals one on the the re-me, and and that's when i sort of said i'm i'm not really looking for a trade um you know I, I was i was the opposite like i yeah everything you sort of saw on the television like you said about the powers, that that was that was what appealed to me um so yeah i when i when i come out of there it's like no i, I definitely want to be an infantry soldier
0: yeah 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 it's, it's um like i said as uh a lot of people know it's obviously there's a lot of different Regiments and battalions, like is the is the grenadier guards like local to to yourselves? I know up where I live in the northwest, it's the Scots Guards. I think is grenadier guards sort of near where you are. Generally?
1: um There was a few a few lads in battalion from Milton Keynes, but not not many. Most most lads from Milton Keynes go to the Anglians or what's now right. the Rifles, which which was yep. the Green Jackets. We got a load of a load of old Green Jackets around here, um and quite a yeah. few quite a few lads that I've got to know that are sort of ex bootnecks and stuff, but yeah, yeah, um, the Grenadiers was mainly sort of Bristol, Manchester, and Wolverhampton. They were like the main recruiting oh. areas for the Grenadiers. Okay, it's um, quite yeah, a spaced out area.
0: Of... Sorry, it's quite a spaced out area. Then that really,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, and then yeah, like you said, obviously the Scots Guards, you know, you've you've got lads from sort of places like Blackburn and stuff, and yeah, um, yeah, that's but, where that's yeah. where I'm from. Yeah 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 there you go yeah, <laughs> yeah most yeah. Uh, yeah. M- most of the sort of grenadiers are, are manx or, or bristolians sort
0: of yeah yeah okay yeah it's, it's different it's, it's strange uh how you know obviously if you went back you know t- towards the sort of like the second world war and stuff like that and even the first world war obviously you had pretty much all the battalions and regiments were from that particular area like there wasn't yeah. really spread out because obviously they're just recruited from the local towns and stuff like that um I just want to talk about like some of the things you've done like what have you, obviously i know you've done a few tours and stuff like that what you, like what what uh, tours have you have you been up to and what you've done uh,
1: my my first tour when i was 19 um was bosnia so that was a that was a winter tour um that was a, to be fair like as a young lad that was a good experience um you know obviously a, a long sort of stint away from home christmas and new year away um and obviously the opportunity to sort of earn earn a medal from it um and then yeah the following year we went out to iraq uh telecate um which i I really enjoyed uh so our our regiment was split down the companies all went to sort of different places and we went up to baghdad um mm-hmm. and yeah i I loved it up there um it was sort of daily patrols up and down up and down route irish to the uh the buy baghdad airport and um so everything nothing was really done on foot it was all done in um all done in snatch vehicles so yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah. and then yeah obviously herrick uh went to afghan in two thousand and nine yeah. um on a winter tour um which again i i enjoyed i i i quite i quite liked the simplicity of being away on tour um I suppose sort of barrack life, you know, is a bit more sort of mundane. You've got, obviously with the grenadiers, you've got the ceremonial duties and stuff as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas, yeah, to be away on tour, I actually thought was quite a sort of laid back sort of lifestyle and soldiering, um, which which was what I enjoyed. Um, and then, yeah, I, I got to, we, we went away sort of quite often sort of overseas for exercises. So. Um, I'd I'd gone and done sort of jungle training in Jamaica, um, the Falkland Islands, um, Kenya and uh yeah, obviously Canada. Um mm. so yeah, one of the things like I said, when, when I was a sort of teenager wanting to join, I wanted to go and see the parts of the world that, you know, your your holiday companies wouldn't necessarily go to. Um and I was very lucky that sort of I joined the Grenadiers at a time when it was sort of back-to-back tours and stuff so i got thankfully to to go around the world
0: yeah 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 I, and with with your tours and stuff like that i can understand i can completely understand where you're coming from with like because with when you're on tour for instance when i was in afghan it's, it's very much a routine that like you you set you know set shifts or set patrols etc cetera, etc cetera. and like you say when you're back in in barracks like for me personally we we you know it was a rotation as it is with most most regiments battalions and corps, um where you know you do six months of training six months of this you know like pre-deployment training and then obviously you do a six-month tour and then obviously while you're doing your tra- uh, before you do your training you, all it, for me all it was was making sure the land rovers were up to scratch and you go and make sure the radios and test all the equipment on a weekly basis whatever monthly basis Uh, and it's quite like you say it's mundane it's very boring i felt it was very boring so when you you were saying about how being on tour and stuff it's you know it's a bit you know it's quite quite different i I can completely agree because it's a bit more exciting obviously because all that training you've put in for the past sort of six months previous to that tour particular you put into obviously into your tour um now obviously I, I know coming from different like obviously being for, you know grand guards and then for myself being a, a service support as they call it um i was quite lucky and fortunate that i was attached to different regiments battalions or different nationalities you know i have spoke about this before and you know i was attached to the the americans i've been attached to the danish etc cetera, etc cetera, as a signaler um yeah do you ever get opportunities like that being being an infantry soldier
1: um we we had sort of elements of of Americans and stuff with us uh in our in our checkpoint in nadiali um mm. we had a small team of Americans that were for calling in sort of fast air and stuff um yeah but yeah um it's essentially just sort of um on our own i mean but bosnia uh we got to work with the italians the dutch um so that yeah that was that was an experience but um yeah places like iraq it, it was only sort of within um so yeah probably not as much as yourself
0: yeah it's um it's it's just something i'm always interested in with being obviously like i said being someone who's generally supported to like yourselves like you i don't know if you ever had like you would have had you know roll signal radio operators and stuff like that attached to yourself and um, like you say it's um, Generally speaking, I think doing the job you do, you don't get attached to other battalions, regiments, units, etc. Yeah. Just because of the nature of your job, um, yeah. which which I think is kind of, you know, obviously that's just the way the military works, I suppose. Um, I, I know you mentioned, obviously, you've been abroad and did, you know, different tours, i.e. not Afghan or Iraq or Bosnia. You know, you mentioned Kenya and stuff like that. And i know you, you said you mentioned canada and obviously that brings me up to probably the most sort of sort of thing not important but the most sort of uh the, this the thing that brought me to sort of how you are today uh being obviously your accident um for people that yeah. don't know is it possible you can just give a bit of a brief sort of background and what happened and you know what hap- uh, happened in canada
1: yeah um so uh, at the start of two thousand and eleven I was away on s c b c the section commander's battle course in breckham um so obviously in that you you get your your skill at arms qualifications and um and then, as soon as juniors had finished and i'd i'd picked up my promotion um i was i'd got back just as the the battalion was going out to canada um so that was gonna be the start of our pre-deployment to go out on Herrick 16 in 2012. Um, so I, I quite enjoyed obviously the exercise stage of it because that was my first time working as a Lance on and having my own section and, and the added sort of responsibility and input that I could have. So I, I felt like I really thrived in the six weeks within the rifle company. Um, and I'd come back with a lot of sort of ideas and, and things I wanted to implement myself that I'd picked up from the instructors on tactics and things like that. And I felt as a lance on I had a bit more weight behind me to to air those ideas and for those ideas to sort of be implemented in the platoon. And so I really, really enjoyed that side of it. Um, and then because I was now skill at arms qualified, um, we, the, the lance and above were staying behind to help out with the range safety for three yorks um and an opportunity came up which sounded sounded like the sort of the easy route for the next six weeks uh, obviously we'd just done yep. everything on foot for the last six and um it would be working with the dismounted infantry so when they'd said you know you'll be going everywhere on vehicles rather than on foot um you'll just debus, follow them to clear a position and mount back up so that that seemed quite appealing <laughs> you know like yeah. not not sort of walking around for hours and end again um but obviously it was different i hadn't i hadn't done armored infantry or anything like that before um and so like i said it, it seemed like well at least the next six weeks it's not going through the same ranges again like i'll yeah i'll, I'll do it um and yeah sort of i I was sort of picking the brains of the permanent safety staff that were out there on a two-year posting and Just trying to sort of get up to speed and stuff Um, and Then yeah, they went through their their live firing sort of building up sort of in going down as an individual pairs fire team, section So all of that I was happy with Um, But there was a a shortage of kit and equipment um, notably sort of high visibility vests deserts, which the the other safety staff were in um, and radio equipment so when the scale of the ranges got bigger platoon attacking upwards they became more disorientating because i i didn't have a radio i had no communication with any of the other safety staff and so the particular day that it happened was a platoon attack range so um the the sections would be in the back of warrior vehicles sort of 30mm cannons would would fire at the first position the lads would debus out the back and go and clear a bunker position uh, and that would be our cue to sort of debus and and follow them um and then following on from that was a trench system and on the first platoon in the morning that was as far as I went uh, the the section that I was following just stayed as fire support, so I didn't go any further forward, um than than the trench system. We stopped for lunch, and then I'd sort of said I'd, I found it quite disorientating, uh, you know, almost straining to hear. Which obviously, like when you when you've been in for a while, your ears ring as, as soon as there's <laughs> yeah, like a yeah. a live round fired. So you've got that ringing in your ears anyway it's noisy, there's there's lads obviously sort of shouting and stuff. And so I I was really sort of straining to hear and obviously the spacing that you've got between the safety staff. And so I'd sort of aired my concerns at at the sort of stop for lunch that I didn't feel particularly safe on that range, Um, but being sort of an external posting, so to speak, and working with people from different regiments and um, different officers. And there there was an element of just Get on with it um, so again when the second range started with the second platoon same thing again except the section that i was following through the trench system then became the assaulting section to push on and clear the compounds um, so i went with them uh, they stacked up outside in their assaulting pairs and i'd have been due to go in with the last pair in the last room and Obviously, I had no communication with the safety staff member that had gone in for the first room. Um, And then, yeah, no sooner had they gone in to clear the first room than the rounds came through the wall, Uh, just MDF buildings they were. Um, And I had my back to the wall. Obviously, I was the sort of furthest extreme forward of the safety staff at that point. Um, And yeah, and I took sort of several, went in through my backside, come out through my groin, and then one went in through the back of my back of my shoulder and come out the come out the front and then yeah there was a there was a bit of sort of confusion that followed because obviously there'd been role play casualties. Um we were obviously sort of testing their casualty evacuation drills and stuff and so man down gets called and um there was a few seconds before they realised it was obviously a a genuine casualty and then the range was stopped and um the other safety staff lads sort of quickly closed in and, and started treating me. Um but three Yorks at that point hadn't been on a on on a Herrick, hadn't been to Afghanistan before and in the Grenadiers our our SOPs, our standard operating procedures were to carry tourniquets, um, morphine on sort of exercise like that, first field dressings. Um and the lads that were going down the range didn't have any of that. Um so it was basically what the safety staff could, you know, throw together. So I, I had the two tourniquets applied, um, the shoulder sort of came later before they started, you know, packing that. Um, but it meant that I had no morphine or anything. I had no, no pain relief. Um, and because it was an exercise, um, when the nine liner was sent through for a casualty evacuation, um, they they took it as part of the the exercise as, as role play, um, so there was a lot of a lot of confusion that followed. Um, they sent a, a Lynx helicopter as opposed to sort of how you would get the MERT in in Afghanistan, and it took a long time to get me off the ground. And yeah, the heli sort of went away again, and then ended up coming back. And the medic you know sort of got off the back and didn't have morphine either, and. Um, in total by the time i was eventually airlifted i'd i'd been on the ground for around about 90 minutes
0: wow well that's that's a long that's a long time um yeah, yeah. i i one one thing i was going to ask actually because obviously when we used to me as a signaler we used to do uh training exercises and stuff um we used to use you know like the no play procedure stuff like or no play yeah. up, like, uh, scenarios so obviously you, you do everything as you would normally And obviously, if you had an actual casualty, a serious casualty, especially you'd obviously use your no play procedures. Um, Is that not something I would obviously didn't, but I would have thought that was something they might have used obviously in the height of adrenaline and stuff like that. I'm I'm sure people must have obviously been really confused that the fact that you're on a training exercise, but you're actually a real casualty that must obviously confuse a lot of people.
1: Yeah, yeah i think i think that's what it was just just an air of confusion obviously stop 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 was called as soon as i realized it was a genuine casualty which obviously that's that's given in your sort of range standing orders before the range goes sort of live and so all yeah. of that was done there was just a delay uh between obviously me being shot sort of letting out the odd scream or two before the range actually um was stopped but yeah i i mean to be fair i can't criticize any of the safety staff that the treated me they were phenomenal um you know and if it wasn't for them i wouldn't be here they yeah they kept me alive long enough to get me on the heli um and yeah i obviously literally sort of owe my life to those lads um
0: yeah
1: but yeah yeah it's it's just um it's it's one of those things which i sort of found out once i got to sort of headley court later on that there's actually quite a lot of lads that end up injured in in canada um Mm. which you know you doesn't you don't really sort of hear obviously i know there's one recently in castle martin and yeah yeah, uh, yeah yeah it's i i actually found out when i got to headley court that it's happened in canada on quite a few occasions and Happened within a few months of this happening to me on the same range, um, mm. so yeah, there's certainly a risk factor with the ranges in Batters.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and I feel I feel again coming from, you know, I've I've been in that not your situation, but I've been in situations where um, obviously people have been injured and stuff like that. I, the, obviously, to most people, in, you know, the general public who haven't served in the military, et cetera, won't understand that obviously people hear a lot especially back back when obviously afghan was still operating let's say um there were obviously people would hear about people you know getting killed with ieds and, and being shot etc but no one ever ever uh hears about the people who obviously like people like yourself who've been shot and obviously unfortunately uh, we'll go into it in a minute but obviously what happened and you know and obviously coming through the other side obviously I, th- I can't remember this ex- exact statistic, but obviously the, the, there's something, I think along the lines of, for every one death there was in Afghan, there was like 10 people or probably even more that had been shot or blown up and not been killed. And that's what people yeah. don't understand. Um, but just going back to when obviously see the accident. So what was the sort of procedure then from getting you off the ground back to Headley Court? Because um, obviously, you, you know it's quite a, quite a distance
1: yeah um so i i was flown to medicine hat initially uh which is obviously the closest hospital to the ranges um mm-hmm. and then i was basically sort of stabilized sedated and, and flown on to calgary um all of the while I've, I've still got the tourniquets and stuff on and so there was there was there was a, a delay in obviously sort of getting me operated on um i then spent sort of 12 days in intensive care in calgary um before the mod said that i was sort of well enough to be to be flown back to england um and yeah i mean i from what i recall i, I don't think the canadians were particularly sort of happy with me going so soon and when i look back at it now i don't think i was (laughs) i don't think i was well enough to fly um yeah i wasn't in a good way when when it came to flying back and then yeah i was taken to the queen elizabeth hospital in birmingham um and taken straight to intensive care um and i think i spent a further three weeks in intensive care there before i got up onto the actual military ward um yeah and then yeah i was there for around about nine weeks um and then yeah obviously once you sort of start to pick up and you've had certain drains removed and, you know, things like that, certain operations that have helped. And once I'd got to a stage that I was well enough, um, yeah, I then was discharged from hospital and then started at Headley Court. Um, And that's, that's where, that's where the sort of magic happens. That's where you get walking and that's where all the lads that you spent the last few months with on the ward, you see Making massive strides of progress, you know, everyone looks really sort of gone and an ill in hospital And obviously no one's on prosthetic legs or anything like that all in wheelchairs and all with drains and vacuum packs attached to them and mm. the worst The worst you could possibly look is is how I'd seen them all and then a lot of those lads could um it coincided uh with Herrick and I think 4-2 and 4-5 commando from the Royal Marines were out there at the time. So a lot of yeah. the lads on the ward were Royal Marines. Um, so a lot of them I didn't know before this. I was, I was, I was the only grenadier. Um, and, yeah, obviously you see the sort of severity of the injuries and everything coming back. And so I'd only ever known those lads as injured blokes. So then when you get to, to Headley and then you see them again and they've put on a bit of weight they're up on prosthetics so they're no longer at waist height, and mm. it's um yeah it's surreal um but the best the best group of people you could possibly be around in a situation like this because it like i said like i mean the lad opposite me was a was a triple amputee and he was one of the most upbeat positive people you could be around so that was, that, was he a role was marine, marine as well sorry
0: was he a role marine as well
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah, it wasn't it wasn't Mike by any chance, was it?
1: No, a lad called Spider, ironically. Um oh, okay. Yeah, a lad okay. Matt, Matt Webb. Um, but yeah, he he was opposite me uh, once I would actually got up onto the ward. Um, and just seeing the progress that he was making, and he was getting himself up and about, never complaining, never sort of wallowing. And when you when you've got someone like that opposite you, obviously far worse off than I was. Um, you put your own sort of injuries into perspective, and you you sort of you become very positive and appreciative like early on. Uh so I think yeah. I think sort of being with him in particular really sort of set me up mentally going forward. Um yeah. I just saw myself as quite lucky. Um yeah. And then obviously yeah when you get to Headley your mind is solely set on I'm gonna get walking, I'm gonna get running, I'm gonna do this, that, the other. Like that's where you really sort of make progress. Whereas the hospital, you're just trying to get well enough to get out of there. <laughs>
0: yeah 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 i can understand i can i can that makes sense and um, so what at what point was the decision made um it's obviously um as people won't know obviously by looking at you now but what at what point did they make the decision to amputate your leg
1: um so i was shot on the 3rd of july um and i still had the leg at that point um and uh, my wife was was flown over Um basically to turn off my life support um that's that's sort of where I was at and uh I was there for for two days um before when they when they brought me back round um then I was sort of given the ultimatum of of amputating the leg um and I I wasn't I, I was reluctant at first because I I loved playing football and obviously I loved I loved being in battalion um and I knew that well i I thought both of those things would end once my leg was gone so i I was trying to sort of plead to only take the leg below the knee i I believed if my if I kept my knee joint, I'd be able to stay in um you know I still had aspirations to go on seniors and stuff like that and um so yeah when when obviously the the surgeon had said you know it's gonna need to be taken above the knee um yeah, that, that was sort of quite upsetting because I, I thought at the time I would never play football again and um, I'd only just become a dad. My my eldest was born uh, whilst I was in Brecon uh, when I was on juniors and so I hadn't really sort of got to spend much time with him and I thought, you know, I'm not going to get to do the whole sort of being in the back garden having a kickabout with your son and yeah. all of these things were going around in my mind. Um, not Not even the thought of actually missing a leg, just the things that I would miss. And it, yeah, the, the the two things that were on my mind as I was going down to theater to, to have the amputation was football and losing my career. Um, mm-hmm. and that, yeah, that sort of really got to me, but to be fair, like they were, they were pinching the toes and stuff. And cause the, the leg was starting to give me organ failure, uh, where it was, it was dead right. essentially. Um, yeah. and the the part of me still wanted to say I could feel them pinching my toes, but I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't. the leg, the leg was the leg was killing me. Um, but yeah, and then once once they'd taken it above the knee, and I'd I'd gone in several more times to have more taken, but then I'd started to pick up, and obviously, what was killing me was gone. Um, so then I could start to make progress. So yeah, I I mean, in hindsight now, obviously all these years later that was probably the best decision and the the best thing that could have happened to me strangely enough yeah yeah
0: yeah it's it's um i can i do talk a bit about mental health and stuff like that and you mentioned being about you know all the the lads in in headley court and stuff like that now for someone who's ex-military myself i can understand the banter that you probably would have had in that in that you know in the hospital and obviously i spoke about this with some of my other guests and some of my other you know vet, veteran guests and what people consider banter ie us as military people obviously a lot of civilians i'd like to call it in inverted commas um would probably call that probably well they probably class it as bullying i suppose um but i and obviously i'm not, i don't want to talk about too much about what's happened recently but i know about like what has been happened with uh, aunt middleton and stuff in, in the papers recently and I can understand where he's coming from about how us as military people have a completely most of us anyway not all of us most of us have a different sort of sense of humor and and generally quite a dark sense of humor. Yeah. Um. So I think if people had eyes and ears in this sort of situation of you being you know in in a, and with all the other sort of injured injured soldiers uh, or injured. Uh, military personnel in, in the hospital obviously there'll be like, i'm sure there would have been would have been word said but i, I suppose uh, in a way that's what kind of keeps us kind of happy and 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 keeps us because uh, as you say when you joined up you join up and you want to be part of a team and you want to be through you know people that are on your left and right who would you know do anything to help you in in whatever situation that would be and i suppose you were saying about how you know when you was in Headley, obviously there were people there who obviously you wasn't in the same battalion they weren't grand, grand guards they were marines etc., Royal marines um but I'm sure you probably made quite a lot of good friends from from there and and people that you know probably still talk to today um now when obviously just going forward a little bit to towards when you got discharged um was that your decision, or was that an army decision?
1: Um, so when I when I went down for my my medical board in in Aldershot, it sort of came at the right time. I felt like I was at a bit of a crossroads. Headley Court, like I actually look at my time in hospital, strangely enough, and and at Headley with like fond memories, um, mm. because that sense of humour is all the time. You know it it is yeah. still like being part of the battalion um although they're lads you you didn't you've, you've instantly got like something in common like yeah you, your, your sense of humor <laughs> um yeah. and so i i enjoyed it there but you do get to a point i felt which I, which i also felt was a good thing where you're at a crossroads yeah yeah you know you're not going back to battalion um but you're not yet a civilian you're just in between um, and it's that feeling of purpose um, you know I'm, I'm not going to be a grenadier again but I'm also at the minute I'm not away from it um, so I, I'd i got to a point where it's like actually I'm um, if the opportunity comes up I'll take the medical discharge and yeah. there were a couple of roles that were sort of open to me to stay in um, and lads in the battalion that lost their legs on herrick six had had chosen to stay in and had then said in hindsight they wish they hadn't um because they didn't enjoy the jobs they were given sort of working in the stores and stuff and one of the things that was offered to me was to be like the battalion admin son um yeah. and i didn't want that like if i if i couldn't still be a soldier and everything that came with it I didn't want to I thought it'd be worse for me to stay in and be around them all see them all sort of go away on tours and you're stuck behind on rear party and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I, I didn't I thought it'd be worse to stay in and be around it but not not be really involved. Um, so, yeah, when when they sort of offered me the discharge, I was ready to sort of take it um, and then you've got a timeline then you've then got a year to yeah. sort yourself out to to bleed headly dry of all of the, you know, the the facilities that they, they offer you, uh, you know, get as much from them as you can in, in terms of sort of treatment and everything like that and courses. And so I did. It was like, I've got a year now and I'm going to make the most of it. Um, but, yeah, when it came, it was a strange feeling, obviously, handing in your your ID card and stuff and uh, knowing that to get back in, you need an escort and think, like that was that was a weird feeling. But um it it felt a relief to at least know now where my life was sort of heading i wasn't sort of stuck anymore um but yeah yeah it is it's not how i sort of saw my career ending um yeah yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, obviously i intended to sort of stay in for a full career and that's probably what i struggled with at headley is some lads were good at Accepting that early on and having backup plans, you know, careers that they would have liked to have done as well. Whereas throughout Headley, I I got sort of asked a lot by the occupational therapists and stuff what my what my plan was beyond Headley, and I didn't really have one. I, you know, all of these, you know, what do you want to do for a, you know a career afterwards? What what do you want to what do you want to work in? And that whole two year stint there, it was like, I don't know. Um, whereas I'd been so fixated as a teenager that I wanted to be a soldier that I still didn't really have a backup plan um, that was the only sort of thing that worried me but obviously coming out with your pension takes an element of those sort of worries away because at least financially I was looked after
0: yeah 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 I, I, it's it's something that like for pe- obviously people that listen uh, will know that I, I used to work with kids during, uh, well, pr- pr- uh, pre-COVID. So I used to work with children, um, and one thing I always say to them is, look, you know, you can do whatever you want in life, but there may be times where things happen that you, how you have no control over, you know, and that's obviously a similar situation for yourself. But rather than just sit there and just dwell in and, and, and just letting it get on top of you, um." just fight through it and, you know, carry on um, because, you know, things will happen, you know, things do happen, you know, like, like again, look, going back to looking at yourself, obviously you intended to do a 22 year career, probably more if you wanted to, but obviously unfortunately you came across, uh, not came across, so you, you were involved in this accident, which obviously cut your career short. But um, for what you've done since you left the military, I think is amazing for, for considering the circumstances now one thing obviously we're going going away now from the military and obviously you you were unfortunately medically discharged um um first of all was it you had a sort of you dabbed in a little bit of uh, being a personal trainer am i right insane yes yeah,
1: so i'd i'd use my resettlement course um mm. to, yeah use my sort of learning credits and all that and I, I did my PT course because um, I the only thing I sort of could say to the the occupational therapist was I want to do something that's still active um, mm. you know something to do with sport you know I still need to be up and about um, and so obviously when it came to the resettlement course after you, after you leave it was like personal training you know I can be in a gym I can still be active um, and it seemed on paper like that's probably my best option. Uh, So I did, I did three months, um, at Banner Tines, which, um, in my mind, I thought, you know, as a personal trainer, um, hopefully I'll be able to sort of motivate people in the gym that are sort of struggling, you know, if if I'm joining in with them and and leading by example, you know, that will, that will sort of get the best out of them. And, um, I think coming from Headley Court, being around such highly motivated people, you know, people yeah. that were so driven to, to push themselves and prove what you could do, missing legs and arms, and to then work with people who were really struggling for motivation, and um, I, d- I don't know, I didn't take to it very well. Uh, yeah. I found it quite draining and exhausting that these people didn't didn't share my enthusiasm and my drive um and so within within that first three months i i just remember thinking like i can't do this for the next 30 years or so like i can't even see me doing this for the next 30 days like i yeah this isn't what i'm meant to do um like you know get up at six o'clock every morning and go to the gym for sort of 10 12 hours like this isn't I, I love training in a gym whereas working in one was very different. Um mm. and it was like, no, I I need a challenge. I need something that's gonna sort of fire me up and you know, get me out of this sort of rut that I'm I can feel myself slipping into. Um yeah. so I'd I'd been looking throughout Headley online in the evenings when you're sort of sat in your bed space and um a lot of American bodybuilders were were popping up the uh wrong prosthetic legs and yeah i i'd mentioned it a couple of times to the physios and stuff and they they didn't really have too much knowledge on any of it and um then yeah when i sort of opted not to not to stay as a personal trainer uh i'd, I'd said to my wife i'd i'd like to i'd like to sort of push myself and, and see if I can step up on stage. And I'd, I'd found one, I'd found a competition that was including a disability class. So I would be up there with other disabled people. And yeah. um, and for me, with, with how ill I was in hospital and how much weight I'd lost, and I saw bodybuilding as the perfect end of that chapter. Mm-hmm. This is how far I've come. And here I am stood in a pair of posing trunks being critiqued in front of a crowd of people, um, except I'm not gonna be judged for the prosthetic leg. I'm gonna be judged for everything else that I'm still more than capable of training. Um, And I quite liked that people, whether they said it openly or not, doubted that I could do it. Uh, And I suppose that was what fired me up in my head. This is something that I don't think people believed I, I could do, it was, you know, Probably thought I was still on morphine or something, you know. Um
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: that, that sort of it fired me up, and discussing with my wife the fact that obviously I would be giving up work, and would my pension sort of cover everything, and would we still be sort of financially secure? And to see that we were enabled me to sort of focus fully on, you know, preparing to step up on a stage, and yeah, so I entered my my first competition within a couple of days of leaving bannertines and I gave myself I think it was five months um to to get up on stage
0: yeah yeah and you, you obviously you're pretty successful in it I believe um from what I've you know what I've seen um what kind of what kind of what sort of level did you go to
1: um yeah I mean I it was one of those whirlwind things I wanted to do it once like i said to sort of close that chapter and prove i could do it um i never really had any intentions of doing it more than once but through the positive aspect of social media um the competition that i did done in margate my first one um i ended up winning um okay so I, I was on stage with with two lads with cerebral palsy and that in itself was an eye-opener for me because although i'd been around lots of amputees and lads had lost their sight and were paralyzed obviously from afghan and iraq i hadn't really been around people that were born with a disability um Mm. so that that sort of gave me a a new sort of sense of perspective in in that sense as to i had like a you know i was able to play Sunday league football growing up i did all of them normal things I, i suppose and yeah it made me appreciate how lucky i was um but i i won that competition and like I said, sort of through social media, um, people had uploaded videos and stuff of me on stage and um, it caught the eye of the head of the NPC, which is the, the biggest uh, amateur bodybuilding federation in America. Um, okay. So I was on Twitter at the time and the organiser um, had invited me out to America to do the Phil Heath classic. Okay. Um, and yeah obviously when i sort of replied to him and we started messaging and i realized he was he was serious um i jumped at the chance and mm. that that there was what opened up so many more doors um and then from there obviously i got i whilst i was at the phil heath classic i i got to share the stage with him i was sort of invited on um to for a pose down with Phil Heath himself, and that was sort of the the making of me, I suppose, because I then became known as that bloke that shared the stage with phil Heath um mm, yeah, so that then yeah. led to more invitations to competitions um and I wanted to use that then that that platform that I then had to try and inspire uh, in the back of my mind other veterans um people of all disabilities that you can get up on stage and you can you can sort of achieve anything and um so yeah i i took up the invitation to plenty of other competitions after that and i was fortunate enough to sort of win five or six more shows and um i was invited to guest pose at at body power on the pro stage um and yeah it was just a bit of a whirlwind i i I embraced it I suppose and just I believed I'll be old news tomorrow so while these opportunities come my way I'm going to take them um, and I just I just sort of jumped at every opportunity but obviously that meant staying in in condition ready to get up on stage for
0: pretty much nine months straight which was yeah you know, which was hard going yeah yeah I can I can imagine I, I, I've never been in you know to that level and I've never competed in bodybuilding as such, but I know people who, who do, and it is quite, you know, quite difficult uh, to, to keep in, you know, like you were saying before, about keeping in that sort of peak kind of condition for most of the year round. Um, and you obviously you've got to keep within a percentage of the body weight that you're probably competing at, etc. Um, yeah. So my next question is then, is because of that, um, that kind of difficulty, is that what brought you on to, strong man um to be honest i I mean the the diet in
1: i've always loved my food so i i found every day of bodybuilding hard um yeah yeah. (laughs) hungry always tired um and i when it came to the end of the season around september october 15 um i felt like i'd exhausted every avenue um you know, I, I didn't think it would get much better than being in America with Phil Heath, like that. That yeah. I thought, this is as good as it gets. Um, so when the season finished and I was able to sort of stop dieting and I carried on my training and where I wasn't so fatigued and exhausted, um, I found like my strength had picked up and lads I was training with were commenting on on my strength. And um, that coincided with, there was um. An insight into disabled strongman taking place in Kent. And the organiser had said, you know, why don't you come down? Um and I'd I'd grown up watching Strongman every Christmas and stuff. I'd I loved it. Um and the thought of doing that really appealed to me. But to be fair, I was I was a bit skeptical. I spoke to the bloke on the phone and when I was asking all the questions and stuff, and for someone that's missing a knee joint, um it would have meant competing in a wheelchair so i i went down a little bit skeptical obviously at headley it's drilled into you to be on a prosthetic leg to be up and about and so a wheelchair was was bluffing it it was a backward step um yeah. so i was i i thought i'll go down i'll try it um but i'm not sure i want to be in a wheelchair um and then yeah i went down and there was some other lads that were there to try it again all with different disabilities um so they were sort of a really good bunch and I got to talk to them and again just even away from the competitive side to to speak to people that had had different injuries or disabilities from birth and stuff it i just i found like being in their company sort of fascinating um mm-hmm. And I think that sort of brought the the best in me out as well um, in terms of sort of competing because I was sort of in awe of what these people could do and I wanted to do myself justice. Um, so we tried the events the the reigning world strongest disabled man was there to give us pointers and stuff and um, we'd done like a, a sled pull and um, uh, some, some log pressing and and then we went on to the thing that I was really looking forward to, and it was the Atlas Stones. Yeah, yeah. And I'd never I'd never been to a strongman gym at that point. The the gym I was at was very much a bodybuilding gym. It was an old spit and sawdust bodybuilding gym. Yeah. Um yeah. but no real strongman equipment or anything. Um and yeah, I'd never touched an Atlas Stone before. Uh no idea about tacky or anything like that. Um and then I sat I sat in the wheelchair between two, three foot oil barrels, obviously when it's done disabled, it's done slightly different. So rather than taking it from the floor up onto a, um, yeah, like an oil barrel or something like that, or a podium it's done yeah. from side to side. So a lot of core strength, um, a lot like a Russian twist, but with an Atlas yeah. stone in your hands. Um, and then I think I tried, I started off on about the 50 kilo one and it, I've got quite, a long arm span uh, so that that went easy Um I just sort of put my hands under it rolled it up onto my chest and over it went and they said you know that that looked good you want to go up a weight and up a weight, and this kept going and then the record at that time in strongman and disabled strongman had been a 90 kilo stone that was as heavy as they had gone in a competition and I threw that across um like with ease and uh they yeah. said do you do you want to try at a hundred i was like I'll, I'll give it a go um and that went over and uh i think i raised a few eyebrows um yeah and the uh yeah the organizer he said look britain's is in six weeks um why don't you enter and and i thought you know the, these lads are going to be miles ahead of me um but i drove home completely over the whole wheelchair thing it was like i I get it i get why you need to be in it now having having tried the events i i understand the need for the wheelchair um and yeah i phoned my wife on the way home and i was like i've had a brilliant day like you know the the lads asked if i want to enter britain's and i was like i'm gonna do it um so i sort of signed up when i got home and it was like i've got no access to all of that kit and equipment i don't know anyone Um, In the gym that's done strongman, so I can't really pick there was plenty of people in bodybuilding that I could pick the brains of when it came to Diet posing all that stuff. So I I could learn a lot from the people at the gym uh, For the bodybuilding but strongman it was like I'm going into it sort of blind Um, So I just ate as much as I could and trained as heavy as I could Um, and I, I went down just with an open mind, I thought I'll, I'll use it as a learning day. You know, I'll I'll watch everyone, watch how they do things, pick their brains, ask them what they eat, the rest they take, the recovery, when they do event training, if they know anywhere close to me where I can go and play with Atlas Stones and so on. And um, and I thought there, there was, there was 23, 23 strongmen that day. So I thought, top 10, I'll be happy. Um, and we were doing a bit of a warming up. In the sort of gym that was there and i'd seen one of the lads and he's like he you know he looks a he looks a, a big solid lad like i'm i'm gonna watch him and try and match what he does if i can match him i think i'll do quite well um and then yeah i ended up winning it um, Yeah, yeah but yeah yeah it, it had gone a hell of a lot better than i sort of possibly
0: could have hoped for yeah, it's um, it's it's interesting because um, one thing I read about you is, just obviously after your accident, obviously you lost a lot of weight as you said, um, was it around about sixty kilos or so? And then by the time you started doing strongman, again, well, started doing strongman, you went up to about one hundred and twenty, wasn't it? Something like that. Yeah. Is that my right in saying? Yeah. It's yeah, um,
1: I doubled in weight from hospital.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, that's good going that's really good going um but yeah so that was 2016 um you won that but that does obviously doesn't stop there um you went on to win it the year after as well so it was after so after you won the first Britons, did you kind of look at yourself think wow i can actually do this now it's not just me just having a laugh or just being you know just being strong you think i could actually do pretty well in this
1: um, yeah, I think I found it all quite surreal on the day. I in my mind I'd got lucky. Um, I just had a really good day. Um but I, I still I still picked people's brains. I asked for tips on each event and stuff and um but the bug had got me then, so when I as soon as I got home I had a couple of days sort of rest and just letting it all sink in and um then I, I bought loads and loads of equipment austrian oak logs atlas stones you know bars for deadlifting, um giant dumbbells every bit of kit and equipment you could think of that so every possible event that might come up i had the equipment for um yeah. and i sort of converted my garage sort of so i put it all in there so i could i could set up any event um and uh yeah picked picked the brains of of people I was fortunate enough to sort of get to train with um yeah Lawrence Chalet was probably the biggest influence in that sense I, I got to spend the day with him and he sort of tinkered with the way that I was doing things and then I could go away and train on the kit that I now had so I could train specifically for strongman as well as still going to the gym and doing everything conventional I was then added in um event training as well um so yeah then i i ate like a strong man i trained like a strong man and i just lived that lifestyle um and then yeah i was lucky obviously 2017 um because i was still the reigning britain's strongest um the first arnold's disabled strongman uh was in March 2017 so it was going to be an invitation only competition and they were going to invite the best from Britain, America and Canada um, and so I was invited and um, yeah then I I went and won that and that's when you start to think maybe I've found my niche, maybe I've found what I'm good at um, and yeah it didn't I found like I wasn't missing the military so much. I'd had, I'd had wobbles where I sort of every now and then like I'd miss it. And it was like, I'm at the Arnold Classic, you know, I'm in front of thousands of people and I'm yeah. competing with like the best in the world at, at, at this. And I'm doing something that laying there at 60 odd kilos in hospital, people would have laughed at, you know, the thought of pulling trucks and stuff was, no one would have even considered it, you know, me included and like here i was amongst the best in the world at something you know a sport i'd grown up watching and just had to sort of pinch myself and um yeah every every time i went away there would rather than looking at the events that went well i'd always look at the ones that didn't so my training would then be how can i improve the events that aren't going well and then hopefully over time i'll become more consistent um if I can place middle of the pack on my weaker events and win my strong events, I'll do all right. Um and then yeah, a few weeks later I went and won Britain's again. Um and that's probably one of my one of my best performances. Uh I got three first places and two second places. So yeah. I had that I had that sort of consistency. Um and then yeah, the following year uh I won I won the Arnolds again um and that was that was probably my best my best competition that was then the point where it's like i feel like i've got a genuine chance of being the best in the world i i won four out of the five events at the arnold's um you know I was quite a way ahead in terms of points on the day and yeah um yeah i just i was at my heaviest my strongest every, everything everything for competing felt great and then I went and won England's which the the only Englands that ended up happening I won that a couple of weeks later um, and just before that I'd I'd set uh, a world record for pulling two racing trucks at the same time um, on brand hatch racetrack and so then then it sort of became like what are my limits you know what just what can I achieve I'd I'd gone from being someone that was Um, strong for a disabled person in in the right way possible to trying to be stronger than the average able-bodied person um and that was then my my drive in the gym and stuff is people looking across and you doing things that the average able-bodied person can't do that was like it was driving me and driving me and I always sort of thought if I surround myself with sort of positive people and people that are stronger than me, I'll keep making progress. Um, and yeah, it sort of became um, a thing that that truck pulling and stones were my events. They became my real sort of um, things that I became known for in the sport. They were they were ones I was expected to do well in, and they were probably the two I was most most proud of because for me they were the most iconic events, um, the thought of seeing someone pull a truck and the thought of seeing someone lift out the stones, they were the things that epitomised strongman for me, so I was determined that they would be my strong points. Um, and I think the thing that always really, really sort of motivated me, um, our head referee at all our disabled strongman competitions was Magnus Ver Magnussen. Yeah, and yeah. I'd watched him on television, you know, he'd won four World strongest mans and to be on first name terms with him and sort of be able to call him a friend and to be competing in front of him, that, that always brought out that extra 10%. Like I have to impress Magnus, like that's Magnus for Magnus. And like, I, yeah, I have to leave a good impression. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, that always, always played on my mind is, Knowing he would be the referee, um, I wanted to. I wanted to win his approval, basically.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, so obviously, there's quite a lot of of positives that came from doing your strongman uh, stuff. Now, obviously, for people that know you now, who know you from doing the football, so how come, and what was the reason before that decision to change from doing your strongman to now obviously becoming a amputee footballer?
1: yeah um i mean i i I missed football i think that was the one thing that never really left me um because i had no memory of strongman prior to losing a leg i had nothing to compare it to whereas i always grew up playing football so i always missed it Um, but uh although at the arnold's in 2018 that's when i i genuinely felt I'm in with a really good chance of being the world's strongest. Um, so I was at my heaviest, which was causing a lot of problems with my prosthetic. Uh, I was struggling right. to walk. I was I was at the limit of what the leg could take. And I'd, I'd already broken a foot um, just through sort of squatting and stuff. And so my, my prosthetists weren't particularly sort of happy. And it was becoming more and more painful to walk. And I was finding although I was happy to compete in a wheelchair, I didn't like being in it day to day life. I liked being on my prosthetic and I was finding it harder and harder and more painful to walk anywhere. Like even, you know, my leg props up next to the bed at night, even to put it on from there and walk to the bedroom door. That was pain. And unlike some pains where it, it eases off as the day goes on, this got worse and worse. So I was, I was irritable, I was angry, I was frustrated and um, I, I'd i had an operation in 2017 which had it worked would have been fantastic. It was, I had the sciatic nerve cut right. which should have, if it had worked, should have numbed the leg um, and then the pains that I was having um, wouldn't wouldn't be such a hindrance. But unfortunately, for me, it didn't work um and it was it it made it worse it was it made my leg really really painful um and I found in battalion I was always one of the blokes that enjoyed going out for a beer and I was always quite sociable. I always had my door open I was always um, around people and i liked I liked that and I liked that obviously in football um and then I was finding I was sort of I had no real social life I'd become obsessed with trying to win the worlds um and I'd come up short in 2017 by one event and um so that ate away at me for like a year and it was like right I need to get heavier and oh I can't go to the pub because I'll miss out on tomorrow's training and oh I can't do this because I need to train and it took over um and I found I was spending more and more time on my own um but the thing that when you sort of you have this cocktail of the weight causing the pain um the sort of the selfishness i suppose that comes with being on your own the sciatic nerves that obviously was now causing more problems um but the thing that sort of really topped all of that off was one of the lads from the safety staff that i was working with who clamped off my artery and saved my life um he took his own two weeks after I won my first competition, um, and we'd I hadn't I hadn't known him before working with him as safety, um, but he like me and him like became really sort of good friends afterwards. Obviously, I I owed the man my life, like you know he yeah. like he was sort of um, he could do no wrong in our family's eyes, um, and you know he he'd always sort of pick up the phone and he was in he was in Wales, so there was a there was a feral distance between us, but he'd come to visit us and would always sort of, you know, tell us how proud he was of everything I was doing and seemed in a good place. Um and then yeah, I'd I, I'd gone on my phone one morning. I had a really rough night's sleep and i, I there, there was just something that wasn't right. Um and I'd I'd gone on social media and There was all of these things coming up about Spence, um, you know, about being sort of gone too soon and and I said to my wife, I was like, I think something's happened and I tried to get in touch with his family and then it came up on the news um, that, yeah, he was was involved in something that, yeah, he ended up obviously taking his own life and, um, yeah, that really really sort of ate away at me and rather than processing it at the time um, i just sort of buried it and chose to to keep my mind busy through strongman whereas that sort of concoction of everything all together um we'd gone we'd gone to florida um i was due to go out to norway for the worlds a couple of weeks later and physically strongest i've ever been like all the events i was doing above what they were going to be at the competition weight like for repetition like i i felt i felt sort of phenomenal at that point strength wise but in terms of sort of being a family man and stuff i couldn't walk um i was angry all the time because i was in so much pain i was suffering with depression because I I hadn't really sort of coped very well with Spence going and it all came to a head on holiday um I think the humidity and stuff probably didn't help um Mm. and uh I'd had to spend the holiday in a wheelchair which I hated and so I just sort of hit rock bottom then and um so I when we'd sat and spoken in the in the hotel room um it was sort of apparent that obviously being on my own so much wasn't wasn't good for me, um, and the weight was causing real problems with with the pain I was in. So, and then I I I'd, I'd talked to my children, my my two boys, about I I had it in my head that if I didn't win the worlds, they would see me as a failure. Um, and talking to them, like they actually couldn't care less. <laughs> um, they they weren't. They weren't fussed what titles I had and stuff, and they just had a dad that was unhappy. Um, And that made it easier for me to make the decision to come away from it. Um, So I spoke to an old warrant officer from the Grenadiers and they were really good with sorting out out counseling for me. So as soon as we got back to England, that could start. Um, I sat down with my wife and we put together a list of all the things that were causing me problems, all the negatives, um, all of the things I missed—going uh, to the pub, you know, having a social life, playing football—and um, all of the things I still wanted to achieve. And I, the th- the thing that kept coming up was I, I really miss football. So, yeah, it's so like I'm going to use this opportunity now that I haven't got the pressure of trying to win the worlds. I can lose some of this strongman weight um and obviously get the counseling so i can sort that out and in the meantime we can sort of look at other avenues for sorting out the pain that's in my leg and i was very fortunate i got to go on the the dr christian program and um i had a series of botox injections which numbed the leg completely so that that enabled me to lose more weight because i wasn't in pain on a treadmill and stuff and yeah um So, yeah, yeah. once I'd got down to a weight I was a bit more comfortable with and I could wear the leg the majority of the day and walk enough to do the school run and things like that. Um, I then got involved with amputee football um, because, to be fair, the the weight that I was at Strongman, there was no way a set of crutches was going to take my weight. um, So I had to obviously lose enough for for a pair of crutches to take my weight and um yeah and then then I got involved with amputee football
0: yeah yeah so what what um so obviously you you say you're roughly about one twenty uh, kg yeah. when you were doing your strongman what kind of uh, weight did you get down to to start doing your football training um probably
1: not as low as I thought probably not as low as once I would started playing I realised I needed to be at. Um, yeah. I think it was about 115 when I first played. Oh, right, okay. So I, When I when I first started, um, I joined uh, Peterborough United. Um, and yeah, my first game for them down at Arsenal, it was apparent in the team photo. I was the width of two of the young lads. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You know, I I wasn't very uh, mobile on the pitch. I I just played at centre half and. Um, it was, it was such an eye opener as to how quick some of these lads were on crutches. And again, yeah. similar to strongman, using it as a learning curve to watch people. And, um, that, that then kicked me on further to, to come away, realizing the level that amputee football's played at in this country as like, wow, I need to, I need to lose more. <laughs> like, like, I need yeah. to get a decent set of crutches. I need to do all of the things that they suggested. And i need to come back lighter um and so the league matches were every month so every time we met back up again for a set of fixtures i was lighter and lighter and um yeah so it got easier on the pitch um i don't think i was ever going to beat anyone for pace um the the majority of lads in the league were were born after i joined the army so there's quite an age yeah. gap yeah um so i'm I'm like the sort of one of the grandads in the in the league, um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I was never going to be someone quick, you know. There's there's lads in the league that are nine, ten stone, um, and even now yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sort of fifteen and a half. Like <laughs> I just yeah, I haven't yeah. got it in me to get. I'd have to lose the other yeah. leg to get that. I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. So but with your equipment, you're saying like you have to go and get your equipment. So did you ever get help with? acquiring like because i'm i can only assume that with your crutches and stuff are there like sort of bog standard what you'd get in hospital or do you have to get like specifically made ones for for obviously for football
1: um some some lads to be fair some of the lads who haven't necessarily got the support of forces charities and and pensions and stuff some of the lads who've who've lost their legs to cancer or sort of as, as children and stuff um they they haven't got that luxury so they use nhs crutches um but i was very fortunate that the regiment um set up a colonel's fund uh which is a fund to support all of the the wounded grenadiers um and likewise with the sort of counseling where they funded that for me um they also uh helped with um ordering me a set of carbon fibre crutches from Canada of all places. Um yeah. But yeah, so I've I'm very fortunate I get to play on a six hundred pound pair of carbon fibre crutches that weigh seven hundred grams. Um yeah, yeah. So I, I was very lucky that, you know, obviously the carbon fibre is strong enough to support, you know, I'm still I'm still not light compared to some of those lads. So you do see a lot of crutches and i've had it in the past when i've used cheaper ones um snap (laughs) so yeah whereas to have a set of carbon fiber ones i'm very lucky i don't have to worry about my crutches snapping and they can take my weight a bit more um but yeah i've had i've had a lot of a lot of sort of support I, i haven't been found wanting for anything in terms of the grenadiers and um one of the warrant officers, is his role is, is the regimental casualty officer. So he's the link man between myself, the regiment and the charities. So anything that I sort of pick up the phone and say I could do with help with this, I'll sort of leave it with him and, and he'll come back to me with an answer. And I've been very lucky, I think, because I've been proactive from the day that I lost my leg and tried to sort of represent the regiment the best I could. Um, that's paid off when it comes to
0: obviously needing help in return yeah yeah it's 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 good that you got a lot of help like the reason why I mention it is because I'm not not that I'm bitter or anything but when I left obviously I I didn't go through the you know the same scenario as yourself but I know I left on my own accord because I just felt like it wasn't for me again I without going to you know, yeah. my own, my own story. Um, you know, I, I, I was a 22 year career man. I thought that's what I wanted to do ever since I was a kid came back yeah. from Afghan. you know, I had PTSD and, and I lost my best friend who I've mentioned on the podcast before. Um, and I just thought, do you know what? It's not, it's not the same as what it, what it, you know, is anymore. And I just had enough and I just thought, do you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm done so i left yeah. i left uh, you know i left i left the army in 2012 with ptsd and depression um and and i was the opposite you know like don't get me wrong i did get a bit of help but i got once i'd left the military i had to do every single thing myself i got no help yeah. whatsoever and I'm, I'm I'm from people that i've spoke to I'm, I'm glad you know that you got your help yourself and i know that other people i've spoke to have had help so i'm 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 seeing that there's been a big sort of increase in people getting help from military charities and, and, and you know, like your battalion, regiments, etc., Um, So it, it, it is good to see that, you know, people are still helping, you know, even after maybe years that you've left. Um, so that, that's, a that, I suppose that's a really good thing. Um, and obviously me personally, it's just, just, again, this is just my opinion, but I think we're coming now to a different generation of, military personnel uh again it's just my opinion but obviously with people now joining the military you, you're not gonna have the same sort of uh things that probably where we joined we had things like bosnia kosovo or even you know obviously afghan and iraq uh because they're unless you're in some a specialist unit most people don't go to them places anymore uh, oh. and won't and probably won't see the certain things that we may have seen and done so um it's it's gonna be i think it's gonna be different seeing the types of not want not say types that sounds like i'm being condescending or whatever but i mean like the types of sort of veterans we are having that are joining nowadays or you know leaving in you know this time because like i said there's things that are different from when we joined and obviously the people that joined before us in sort of the you know the 80s and stuff so yeah, yeah. It, it's just again it's just my personal opinion that i feel like Again, it's just a different generation of personnel that are leaving nowadays. And and like I said, I, th- I think it's good that, you know, you're obviously getting the help that you need. And obviously I'm assuming if you ever needed help in the past, sorry, in the past, <laughs> in the future, um, I'm sure you could just speak to people and they'll help you, even though you've left the military, you know, years previous, which is good. Yeah, yeah uh,
1: me personally, obviously, at Headley Court, I got to know lads from all different regiments and a lot of us have stayed in touch and The the Grenadiers are one of only a handful of regiments that have a casualty officer in place I think the rifles and the Royal Marines are the others um, and the and the Guards um, And from my own experience, it's something that's massively beneficial. Spence um, He was Royal Welsh and he was discharged with post traumatic stress. So that's a red flag in my opinion straight away is you're discharging a man there that needs help. Um and when I went to his funeral, I, I think a lot of the feeling was that they'd just washed their hands of him. Um yeah. and one of his old platoon commanders had said to me, you know, what what's your regiment doing differently that you know your lads are feeling like they've got someone to turn to. And, and I'd said about the role of a casualty officer and in, in our regiment, it's a retired warrant officer, it's the old drum major. Um, so there's a rapport with them. Um, and you, you feel like you can pick up the phone to him. And I think a lot of lives would be saved from lads that are taking their own from different regiments um, for, for people like yourself who had left with with sort of depression and post-traumatic stresses had you still had that link to the royal signals just to pick up the phone just almost that transition period and to know that you're not you're not like just a number that's forgotten um you know we still have uh black sunday and grenadier day every year so black sunday is our regimental remembrance day and grenadier okay. day the day for the families to go into the barracks is barbecues and alcohol and all that stuff, like things for the children and they get all of the equipment out for the children to sort of get hands on. And so, and that's open to Grenadiers that left 40, 50 years ago, right up to now. Um, Mm. So you still feel part of the regiment. um, And yeah, having spoke to obviously, you know, people like yourself, just still feeling like you're not forgotten makes a massive difference and just having that phone number that you know, if you're in in Florida, I'd got to that point where I said to my wife, I've spent the last few months contemplating suicide on a daily basis. To have that person there at the time on the phone, it was like I can phone him and we can get the ball rolling. Um whereas for people like Spence obviously he didn't have anyone from his regiment to turn to the the charities that do cater for it combat stress and stuff were so backlogged with a waiting list of people trying to get on the courses for help that people like him didn't feel like they had anyone to turn to um yeah and i i think the cost of employing doesn't necessarily have to be an old warrant officer but someone that served that you know has a good rapport with the blokes and stuff um would go a long way you know what they would lose in paying him for a year you know they they would they would gain in saving blokes lives i think um yeah yeah I, it, it amazes me that every regiment hasn't got someone like that
0: yeah it it, it is um and i completely agree it, it would be nice because you know i've done i've done work for combat people like combat stress and there's only so much they can do. I understand that they're extremely busy, and 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 I'm sure you, you probably are aware of this that you know the the amount of veterans who you know have unfortunately you know took their own lives uh, after leaving, obviously after leaving the the forces is is far too high, far too high. Like because yeah. every every week I don't I'm, I'm not sure if you are maybe the same as me, but I'm on a handful of groups on, on social media with, you know, military uh, groups. And it, it's, it only seems like maybe at least once a week or every other week, there's someone, unfortunately, you know, taking the life. And and I feel, uh, again, there is people and I've spoke to people who say like, well, it's your, you know, your choice. You join the military. Um, and if, you know, if you wanted to, you knew that you were going to be going into these situations where you potentially could be seeing Things you don't want to be seeing, et cetera, and losing people, losing friends. Um, and, I, you know, I, I can see that point of view, but at the same time, we're d- all we're doing is a job. You know, we're doing something that we've wanted to do, if not from a kid or something to help us coming from bad backgrounds. And I feel like that's, um, I feel like the help that is out there at the moment, like I said, is getting better, but it's not, it's not. 100% i don't think and yeah. I, I and i feel at the moment um obviously with covid and stuff it's it seems to have got a bit worse because just generally as well I, again i'm not saying not just with veterans but obviously the suicide rate in in the in the in this country especially has gone you know quite high uh, compared to what it was pre covid obviously because we're not able to do things we're not allowed to go out and do things that we'd like to do and know like for me i can't go up to the lakes and go walking or wherever it may be because i have to sit at home and you know people have lost jobs um so yeah i I can i can see like what you were saying about having like a like a kind of like a welfare officer but on on the other side um and one thing i would say is and i feel it's like with yourself obviously coming from a particular smaller battalion, obviously, or you know, going from the guard regiments, um, and someone like myself who comes from a signals unit, which is considered to be, I think, the second, second biggest unit in the British force, you know, in the British Army. There's obviously going to have to be a little bit of differences because there's more people, but again, there should be at least someone there per unit. Like, I know that each unit has their own. You know, we have the RSA, which is the Royal Signals Association. And I'm sure there's people you can speak to. But um, it's something when I, you're get me wrong, I'm, I'm okay now, you know, and, and mm-hmm. only because of what I do as a job, you know, as in now working with, ch- well, pre-COVID, working with children and stuff like that. And it's something that, and as, you, as, as yourself, you've obviously gone through lots of little different things and then come to a conclusion of what you wanted to do obviously con- coming up you know coming from your accident to now and it's the same for me as i say going from what i thought was a 22 year career getting eight years in and thinking well it's not for me anymore and then obviously i decided to you know work with children and do outdoor education which i absolutely love um yeah. so uh, there's something again It is slightly going off the topic but, but it's something that you know it just kind of reminded me of which uh i thought i just i just say um, now uh, last i just wanted to, to last few things we want to talk about i don't want to keep you keep you all day um so obviously you've not long re- released your book um now obviously for people who haven't uh or who don't know much about you especially before this uh p- for the podcast uh can you just give a bit of an overview really about what's in the book and what it's all about
1: yeah i mean it wasn't something i ever thought i would do um one because I, I i didn't think people would be interested and and two i didn't really have the time like i've i've made a point ever since i've been out of the military of always being busy whether that's taking children uh, the, the children to their sort of after school clubs or me being at football training or the gym or like i've always been busy and then Uh, About a week before we went into that first lockdown, I was out for a drink with a couple of people I'd served with, and one of the lads had said, you know, with all the things you've done, you should write a book, and I sort of laughed it off, and and he was like, and I said, while while you're sort of current, you know, while it's sort of all relatively recent, I think people would be interested, Um, and I, yeah, I didn't really sort of think of it, and then we went into lockdown. And the gym's closed. Football training finished. Our season was null and void. And it's like I've got nothing now. Uh, all the things I enjoy, all the children's clubs had stopped. Obviously, the schools closed. was like yeah. now is the perfect opportunity. I have got the time, and I could do it. Um, so yeah, I, I shut myself away in in our sort of office at home on the laptop, sort of. Wrote in chronological order, everything from being that teenage boy and the reasons why I wanted to get away from home and and sort of start a life in the military and a fresh start and what it was like to be on tour. Um, I tried to talk more about the things that people maybe wouldn't see on the news and stuff when it comes to being in the guards, Mm. you know, pulling your boots and... buffing your what yeah you know your buff belt and everything like that um all the little details and i i spoke a bit more fondly about i used to i used to um enjoy a night out quite often in battalion um so i've got a lot of funny memories um and i wanted to put that side of it in i wanted to i wanted people to understand me as a person, I wanted to write it in my own words so that if someone read it that knew me, they would be able to picture me sort of talking to them and saying it. And um, so I wanted to do it myself. So I I sat here three to four hours every single day, going through every sort of chapter of, of my life from sort of a teenager right the way through to now to almost give people an idea, you know, look into sort of my head and what what pushes me, what motivates me, and why have I done the things I've done, like, um, I've always been sort of very stubborn and driven, and hopefully by the time people have sort of got to the end of the book, they'll understand why, Um, so, yeah, lockdown seemed like the perfect opportunity, and it took me pretty much the whole four months of of sitting in here writing every single day, and, um, yeah, I must admit, I was glad when it was finished, Um, yeah, i don't I don't think i'd I don't think I'd ever sit and write another one um yeah, but it was it was actually a time to sort of reflect, i suppose, on everything I have done because when it was strong man and bodybuilding, it was always the next competition, the next competition, never really taking time to sort of appreciate what you've done, but just the next one, the next one, and sitting there and writing it all down and seeing you know a thick book sat there and think well actually i have done quite a lot and it's probably the first time where i sat and felt quite proud um and there's something there you know in type that when my children are older that they can pick up and read if they want to and hopefully you know something that they'll
0: be proud of well i'm sure they will mate i'm I'm pretty certain they will um as I say, what you've done is, is incredible. Like say you've gone from something that's obviously going from your accident, which was completely, you know, like just, you know, distraught and, you know, and and it's completely changed the outlook of your life, I suppose, to what you're doing now, which is amazing. And obviously, you know, I wouldn't speak, be speaking to you now, um, if, you know, if you would just gone and done a normal sort of day to day military lifestyle i probably never have without sounding bad i would never would have heard of you yeah. you know you've just yeah. been a normal squaddy like me um yeah but yeah i, I like i say, appreciate you you know taking the time um there's last couple of things i want to ask you buddy um what what's next for you uh obviously hoping hoping now that we can come out of lockdown in the next few months and you know things will start going to sort of not relative normality what, what's kind of next for you um so
1: obviously the the priority at the minute is is football so um this season i've joined west Bromwich albion um okay our season should have started in january but obviously we haven't we haven't done any training for months and so training fingers crossed is back in two weeks time and then with the season possibly starting in may um so my sort of drive at the minute is being as as fit and conditioned as I can be for football um mm-hmm. just trying to sort of improve as as much as I can and try and be more of an asset to the team I suppose and um and play for as long as I can because i I love it and I wish I'd got into it sooner to be honest, like I said like that age gap, I wish I was a little bit younger and could play it for longer um but this year is actually ten years since since i was shot in canada so i wanted to sort of i wanted to do a whole year of like challenges and stuff and sort of market um so uh i've entered the the 10 kilometer stage of the milton Keynes marathon in may so i'm going to do okay. all 10k on crutches um and then in july uh when it will have been sort of 10 years um i'm going to climb Snowdon on crutches um and yeah to be honest like i i I think my sort of goals in terms of you know trying to break world records and stuff like that that's probably of that that chapter's probably closed as well now it's now it's just if i can play till i'm 40 like i'll i'll be really happy with that and then maybe more long term i did i did my coaching badges while i was still at headley court um with the army fa and They were always there as a back burner that, you know, maybe one day I can go back to football. I I didn't think I'd get to play again. So I thought, you know, at least I could sort of be involved in some capacity. And maybe when the time comes when I can't play anymore, then I'd I'd like to go into coaching. Um, But yeah, sort of. The short term, I just want to get back on the pitch. We haven't had a a competitive game now for 12 months. so I, yeah, I just want to play in a meaningful game.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I I can completely agree, mate. Like I I I play rugby. Um, yeah. And it's obviously the exact same situation. We've not been able to play. Uh, I've not played for probably, oh, bloody hell, it must be nearly two years now. Because um, I, wow. I was in Australia uh, 10 days before lockdown. Um, so but for the original lockdown. So I ended up, obviously coming back home and i played i played the season which is the opposite it's kind of it's basically the football season i think which is opposite of what we play um so yeah i've not played for a long time and i i I can i know that my mates who who play rugby and stuff like so wanting to go back and for us it's going to be september now because that's the sort of sort of the normal season uh or august maybe but um yeah it's it's it must be must be difficult obviously everyone's going through pretty crap time at the moment um the last thing i want to ask you about is for anyone who's listening like what 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 advice would you give people i know like you say there's going to be a lot of people who are feeling down crap they can't do anything they've got to do it at home and sat in their ass and not doing anything um but what what advice would you give people just like you know, a quick paragraph or so
1: um i think for me in in obviously this lockdown I, I had the luxury in the first one of of writing the book so that that consumed a lot of my time whereas for this one i've i was a bit more worried because it's like i haven't got that this time um mm. so i very much tried to achieve a positive every day um, regardless of how small it is and obviously for everybody that might be a different thing you know that might be making your bed in the morning, that might be going for a walk, going out on a bike, like anything, um, anything that's achievable so that you finish every single day having done something positive, Uh, you know, whether that's exercise or or whatever, or or sitting and, and writing a book or something, you know, just putting things into words like something to have made each day count so that you're not... You're not just sort of wasting away and and sort of losing these days because you're you're not going to get them back um so the main thing i i would pass on to people is yeah sort of make make the most of every day and try and set yourself a positive you know like i said regard doesn't matter how small it is like even if it's i'm going to make sure i drink three liters of water today you know if you get to the end of the day and you've done it like you've done something positive um and I think that that rolls into the next day and the next day. And then before you know it, you've had a, a positive week, a positive month. And then hopefully we're out the other side of this. Um, whereas I think equally when you're at a low point, one bad day can spiral into two, to a week, to a month. And that's when obviously things get get harder and harder. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, I just... Uh, one of the sort of interesting things that sort of... Um, stuck in my mind um, is the the sort of bucket of water theory and there's sort of four taps and you've got all of these sort of different stresses going in and, and gradually the, the levels rising and levels rising and if you don't sort of release those taps like it overflows and you know gets a bit too much for people and um, if you can name those sort of four taps as four things you enjoy doing and you can turn them on slightly that level is never going to get too much. And, and that's something that's been quite poignant and stuck with me. So I've tried to pick those, you know, name those four taps as four positive things that I like doing. Um, so for me, like I said, I can go in my garage gym every single day, I go out for a walk with the children to the park. So, you know, there's a positive. Um, I get to do things like this with people like yourself. So there's a positive. And I've sort of made every day count. Um, yeah. I think that's something anybody can implement into their lives because that that bucket of water with those four taps can be whatever four things they choose, just just things that they enjoy, that they miss, or that they that are feasible to be able to tick off at the minute.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 one one thing I I just wanted to add it uh, onto that is for me what I would always say to people as well, and and again going because. We both come from similar background, and we both have had our own mental health problems or not problems, just uh, issues. Um, now, I think personally, the biggest thing is to speak and talk about it. Like, yeah. I I can say that from my own personal point of view. I was the opposite. I didn't talk about my problems for for a long time, until one day where you know I just exploded. And for people that know me, and, and just so you, like just so. You, uh, you got a bit of an insight like I, I was an alcoholic for, for a good number of years after I left the military and now for nearly five years now that I haven't touched a drop not a t- drop of alcohol I've t- you know drug touched in five years And that was that was my, my 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 thing with that is and it's not my saying it's not my quote is I know a lot of people turn to drug and drugs or drink in, and people that I know from the military have gone down that route end of the day if you say for instance i was going down the drink route and i was drinking every day you still wake up in the morning with an absolutely smashing headache still with the same problems your problems haven't gone away you've still got the same problems you've just got a banging headache it makes things worse so that's that's my if i if i can add something to that it's it's just to talk doesn't matter how you know especially and again i'm going to say it from our point of view as men like i know a lot of men don't like talking about it because you think it's like demoralizing them or something like that it doesn't matter what you know it doesn't matter if we're big big like us big big army lads or whatever or you're just a normal civilian or whatever male and female or even you know and again children we all have our own problems we all have our own issues and i think the best thing to do is if you you can if you can talk about it when you feel like you've got a problem straight away that's the first sort of the first point is to talk one let you say it gets on to top of you and top of you and top of you and before you know it the whole world's on top of you and that's unfortunately yeah. when we get to the point where people are taking their lives and and, and stuff like that, which is very unfortunate so that's that's the last thing i wanted to just to say um now last thing is where if people want to sort of follow what you're doing and your journey and stuff like that where, where can people find you like on social media etc yeah yes yeah,
1: um i'm on instagram and, and facebook um if they just type in mark smith amputee footballer um that'll that'll come up
0: awesome awesome uh, like i said i'll put everything in the, in the description uh, so everyone knows where to find you and, and, and stuff like that um so I, like i said the last thing is i, I really appreciate you coming on buddy it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you it's gone very quick um you know it's been it's been nice chatting to you uh, so i really appreciate it um and like I said, hopefully if people can take things, even if it's a small thing from this conversation, uh, you know, and, and, and kind of put it towards their life and, 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 you know, make themselves a bit more positive, et cetera. Then I'd, I'd, I'd think that'd be a quite a good thing. As I say, help one person, they help another, they help another. I've said this before, I yeah. don't, I'm not expecting to help, you know, I'm not expecting to get like a million views and a million people, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, one person helps with one person, helps another one person. And eventually you're helping a lot of people which is good so thank you very much mate Uh, i appreciate you coming on it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you um for for people that again want to keep an eye on what i'm doing i've got more podcasts coming out you know every every friday they come out 6 p.m um and if i don't see you soon i'll catch on the flip side